1: Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who, if you asked what his three favorite movies would be, all of his answers would start with the same word. And that word is Rocky. He is the captain.
0: Yo, I'm, I'm not punchy. I have what they call a relaxed brain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
1: Today, we are drinking Imperial Confession by 1940s Brewing Company. This is an Imperial double oatmeal stout that involves one of my favorite things, Woodford Reserve. This oatmeal stout is barrel-aged in Woodford Reserve bourbon barrels. That's right. Somewhere, Captain, there is a guy listening to this at work, and he is thinking, oh my God, how can I get out of here? And get some oatmeal stout and some bourbon. Garage grade, folks, four out of five bottle caps. And here's some cheers to our good friends. First up, a cheers to Lavina in San Diego, California.
0: And a big we like your jib to Bridget in Phoenix, Arizona.
1: How about a big how's your jib to Bonnie in Chesterfield, Michigan? How's your jib? How's your jib?
0: And a big shout out to Lori in Durban, UK.
1: And next we have Brianna W in Waka, Saskatchewan. And last Saskatchewan. And last but certainly not least, Captain, we have Katrina in Kansas City, home of the Champion Chiefs. Everyone we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and they contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we are super grateful. Thank you all.
0: Yeah, we spank you very much. Make sure that you share. The show's on social media. And you can follow us at True Crime Garage on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And that is enough of the business.
1: All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. In his Best Fact Crime, Edgar Award-nominated book, legendary FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood writes, The impulsive offender is not an intelligent criminal. He is apt to be dull-witted and foolish and is least successful at evading identification and apprehension. As the term impulsive suggests, he lacks discipline and self-control. He makes poor decisions and carries out his crimes in an unplanned and unsophisticated manner. About the only thing that the impulsive and ritualistic offenders share in common is an underlining need for power, feelings of anger, or a combination of the two. The impulsive offender lacks clarity and definition, and so do his fantasies, actually What goes on in his mind probably does not rise to the level of a full-scale fantasy. Whereas a ritualistic offender might paint his mental pictures with patience, intelligence, close attention to detail, and a texture from a richly hued palette. The impulsive offender deals in stick figures. His imaginings are simple and crude more like fragmented thoughts than well-defined scripts. The victim appears to him in primitive terms, female, available, and vulnerable. She may be a stranger, his wife, or a girlfriend. He is not a discriminating criminal. Women to him serve a single function. They are disposable vessels for gratification. This one-dimensional attitude toward the opposite sex ties in with his view of his role in the crime. A perspective of entitlement. I want to do it, so I will. Some of the killers and crimes we will discuss this week are very interesting examples of the impulsive offender described by Mr. Hazelwood. Three of the murders we will discuss are prime examples of just that. And from the beginning to the end of the attack, show the recklessness that is so characteristic of the impulsive sex offender. One who randomly selects his targets with no concern for potential risk, and then impulsively seizes the chance to sexually assault an available victim, taking no precautions to protect his identity. Kimberly Niece was born August 2nd, 1961 in Cody, Wyoming. She will have a little sister named Pamela. The family moved out to Poplar, Montana when Kim was just four years old. Poplar is a very, very small city in Roosevelt County. It is not just BFE. It is BFE surrounded by much more BFE. At the time of our case, and still to this very day, The population of poplar is less than 1,000 people. Oddly named as the poplar tree is a fast-growing tree, and the city of poplar hasn't grown at all. Poplar is on the southern border of the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. The start of our story takes us back to 1979, and at the very start of the summer of 1979, Kimberly Neese was just 17 years old a pretty and smart girl coming of age in a small town. At Poplar High School, Kim was a three-year National Honor Society member. She played basketball, and she was on the track team. She received a scholarship. Her brains and hard work made getting good grades easy, and so with it came that scholarship. After graduating high school, Kim planned to spend the summer working on her father's farm and hanging out with friends a few more times before leaving her little town, in the fall, Kim was off to the big city of over 33,000 residents in Missoula, Montana. Kim was enrolled to attend autumn classes at the University of Montana. Now, on the evening of Friday, June 15th, Kimberly Niece went on a date to the drive-in movie theater in Poplar with her boyfriend. His name is Greg Norgard. They went in Norgard's car and he took her home afterwards sometime around midnight or 12.30 a.m. Greg was 21 years old, and Kimberly was 17. They had been going out for a while. They had been seeing each other for about a year. They say they were going steady for about six months. But at this time, things were not really working out well between the two of them. They had a disagreement, which in Greg's opinion was there was no really resolve to this disagreement. This all stems from Greg confronting Kim about her having spent the previous evening hanging out with some other guy until the wee hours of the morning.
0: Yeah. That normally never goes over in a relationship.
1: You never want to hear that. Do you captain?
0: Hey, by the way, I was spending last night with another guy
1: and we had so much fun. We hung out till about, I think she said it was like four in the morning. Yeah. Kim did not hide this from Greg. She was pretty upfront about it. They did have this disagreement, but according to Greg, Greg, they decided they were going to go on their date anyway, and during the date they didn't really discuss this matter too much. You could cut the tension with a knife. Well, you probably could, and I think maybe part of the reason for not discussing the the disagreement too much is either you got to move past it at some point or right. you're going to the movies. Maybe you're really into the movie and you just, you know, you don't want to talk too much during the movie. I'm not sure what movie they saw that night, Captain. I do know that the movie Hair, which is a disgusting name for anything, was a big deal at the time, which would absolutely be dreadful to watch. At least you're at a drive-in so you can drink beer in your car. And then, Captain, you'll like this. The movie Rocky II came out that very day. So mm-hmm. not certain what they saw. but That's probably what they saw. That's what I would have seen. Yeah. Now, there are some good sources out there for this case and some questionable ones as well. We know that with most of these cases that we cover. I really like the stuff posted on a website called Montanans for justice. That is a fantastic way to do a deep dive into this case. If you want to do that on your own, then we have a friend of our little garage show, Mr. Barney Doyle. Doyle knows this case quite well. In fact, it's the subject matter of a great chapter in his book titled reckless speculation about murder And I was also able to dig up some pretty good newspaper articles from the Big Sky State and also from Louisiana, which will play a factor into this whole case. And you'll see why in a little bit. So according to Greg, and there is a good deal to to back up most of his story. Greg says he dropped Kimberly off at home and then he went to the American Legion bar. He says he told her he was going to the bar. She asked him if he was mad at her. He says that he told her no. He said he saw Kim's pickup truck. This is actually her father's pickup truck that she used quite a bit. Right. Parked in front of her house when he dropped her off. He said he did not walk her to the door. Shortly after Greg leaves, Kim, she gets in this truck and she went out driving. Kim was out cruising Poplar that night and was seen by multiple other teenagers who were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. According to at least two witnesses, Kim was parked at the gas station sometime before 1 a.m. She was alone in her father's pickup truck. One of those witnesses saw the same pickup truck traveling west on Highway 2 at about 1 a.m. or a little after, but couldn't tell if how many people were in this truck at the time, but they knew that it was Kimberly's truck.
0: Well, again, this is 1979, right?
1: Good old 1979.
0: So you get home. If it's pretty late after the movie, you're not going to be calling your friends because they probably have curfews. Back in the day, you'd have a curfew. You'd tell your friends, don't call my house after nine. Makes my parents upset. So, 17 years old you're looking for something to do the only way to do that is to get in your car drive around drive past your friends house try to find out where where people are hanging out
1: for my understanding captain and you know again this is a very small town that there were a couple things that seemed that were going on at the time it seems to me like a lot of kids were out well past whatever their curfew would be set by their parents or by the town. If the town even had a curfew for, for juveniles, I don't probably know
0: at that time.
1: Yeah. And it also seemed to me like the American Legion bar was really a go-to spot if you were an adult mm-hmm. and during the summertime when these seniors or keep in mind, even though Kim is just 17, she's already graduated. Mm-hmm. And she's working for her father. So she doesn't have a whole lot of obligations and responsibilities until she goes off to college. So a lot of these kids, it seems like while their parents were out at the American Legion bar till the wee hours of the morning, they were borrowing their parents' vehicles and they would hang out and find places to hang out outside. And a lot of them would go to, there were a couple different cliques, even though this was a small town, small community. But it sounds like one community would, one one click would hang out at one gas station, kind of park and talk and then figure out places to go. Right. And then the other click hung out at the other gas station.
0: Yeah. When I was in high school, a bunch of people would hang out at a car wash and it was like, nobody's washing their car. That was just like the meetup spot. It you,
1: was the parking lot between the big car wash and the bowling alley. Yeah. And there was yeah, there was a group that hung out there. I didn't really care for that group, so that was not a spot for me.
0: Well, the, yeah, the group would change though. But but also, you worked at a pizza place, and that was a go-to spot. To, that was one of the hangouts. You just drive by to see see if somebody was there. But also, this is 19 again, 1979. Uh, I'm guessing, depending on what their laws were, they would have been similar to what we had in Ohio which would, would have meant that you didn't have to be 21 to get into a bar. You could have been y- younger because they had 3-2 beer at the time. The drinking age would have been about 18, I believe.
1: Possibly, yeah. I, d- I don't know. I'm not very familiar with Montana at all, other than I know it's very big and it takes a long time to drive from one side of it to the other. <laughs> now, at about 4.15 a.m., two tribal police officers observed a truck parked by the train bridge at the Poplar River west of town, just off of Highway 2. Spoiler alert, this is the truck that Kim was driving. It was a popular spot for teenagers to park and hang out. So the officers didn't really think much of it at that time. When the truck was still there at 7 a.m. that morning, the officers drove down to investigate. This was now weird stuff for them. The officers discovered blood and hair inside of the truck. Next to both the driver's side and the passenger side of the pickup, there were what they called scuffle marks, or believed to be scuffle marks, where the dirt was kicked up. Approximately 10 feet from the passenger side of the truck was what appeared to be a blood spot. And I've seen pictures of the old crime scene and it looked to me like this is a fairly significant blood spot. It the word spot doesn't do it justice. This this was a big a big marking. You could see it from uh photos that were even taken at some decent distance away.
0: We're not going to have a extended cab or even like a quad cab cuz those just weren't that popular back in 79. So, and, and this could have been a bench seat as well, which would make it easier I think to attack an individual inside the truck.
1: Yeah, this was a a smaller cab for any kind of pickup. And as you pointed out, the pickup trucks we have today, quite big in size. This was not that this was not of that manner at all. Now, there were drag marks leading away from the truck. These marks led the officers to the edge of the bank of the river. I want to point this out here. These drag marks were so significant that they were they were blatantly obvious to these officers and so much so that they were able to follow them like a trail of breadcrumbs all the way from the truck to the river. This was not a quick little walk from the truck to the river. This was quite some distance. Do we know how far? I do. I do, and we'll get to that. I don't I don't have that just quite yet. There at the the edge of the river the officers saw a body floating face up in the shallow water about 10 feet from the lower river bank. This was the badly beaten body of 17-year-old Kimberly Niece. Now, as Doyle explains in his book, he says Poplar is a bit of a jurisdictional anomaly. We already have officers from the tribal police department on the scene, but Poplar, as we mentioned, is in Roosevelt County. So the Roosevelt County Sheriff's Office can investigate as well. The Fort Peck Reservation is federal land, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs investigates most crimes on the reservations. But the Federal Bureau of Investigation usually assists on anything as serious as a murder. That's what we have here. Every one of those agencies got called in for the niece murder, but when they're all there captain, it seemed like nobody really knew exactly who was in charge. Right. Whose case was this? Consequently, the scene got trampled. Evidence was contaminated. Now at the scene, officers found that Kimberly's driver's side door was open, but the passenger door was locked. There were no keys in the truck. The gear shift was in park. The radio was on. There were three gouge marks in the ceiling with hair hanging out of them, and gouge marks on the steering wheel as well. Officers found a three-foot crescent-shaped semicircle of blood approximately nine to ten feet from the rear of the truck tire. But there was no blood trail from the passenger side of the vehicle. There were small spots of blood all around the exterior of the pickup.
0: Well, those markings on the ceiling, that what's that term called, where you have like a hammer... Yeah. And you, and somebody strikes down and then as they pull back,
1: yeah, you got to pull back up.
0: Yeah. And that, it seems like that's how those markings would happen inside that truck. Again, that's a small cab of, of the truck.
1: There was a sweater, which belonged to Kim and her purse on the ground beside the passenger door. There was a partial palm print and blood on the passenger side of the door if you've heard anything about this case, if we would have titled this Kimberly niece, we'd have a whole different audience chiming in and and listening in for, for this case. Mm -hmm. This has been a very popular case in that neck of the woods for a long time. And this palm print has been the topic of much debate ever since this murder took place. So let's dive into this single piece of evidence. This palm print, often referred to as the unidentified palm print, is as famous as this case is. I mean, you, can talk, you can't talk about the murder investigation of Kim Neese without discussing this palm print. Right. So with the FBI's help, they worked very diligently to identify the finger and palm prints found inside the truck cab and on the outside of the truck as well after getting prints from the niece family there were four members in this family they were able to identify both finger and palm prints found on the vehicle this is with the exception of two palm prints not one but two so it looks to me captain from the court documentation that i was able to find that these two palm prints they do not match each other and neither have been matched to anyone all of this time even 40 years later
0: and and doesn't match her boyfriend. Correct. But even if it matched the boyfriend, we could you you can kind of we don't know when those palm prints were put there.
1: Well, they're in blood. Okay. So Okay, so It's mate. either during the the course of killing this poor young woman or immediately afterward. Right. When the while the blood is still wet.
0: And then did we get the identification of who she was hanging out the night before, before she went to the movies with her boyfriend.
1: We have that information. We have that, and it comes from, from the boyfriend, and and we'll see that in a bit. But I wanted to make sure that we pointed out here that— But that,
0: that palm th- print doesn't match him as well.
1: It does not match him, and he was a suspect. He was somebody that was looked at really good in this case. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to point out that we have two identif- unidentified palm prints, not just one. You know, uh, the surface story tells you one, Mm -hmm. there's actually two. And the other thing though, I want to point out here too. I don't think this palm print just because it went, it went unmatched to anybody potentially linked to this crime. I don't think it actually clears anybody in my opinion, because as said, there's no nice way of saying it. The blood was still wet. It might not be very accurate. It may not have dried just as it was placed on the truck. And because it's distorted, uh, sorry, distorted, it may not match anyone. Now, from the truck to the riverbed, you had asked about this, Captain. It was about two hundred and fifty feet. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not anywhere close. And every bit of evidence we have suggests that every bit of the attack took place up by the truck. And how much did she weigh? Well, she was a smaller person. I believe she was. Uh, I would say about 100 to no more than 115 pounds.
0: Okay, that's not that heavy. So you would think an individual, if there's two individuals, that's not really that hard to move a body, even though it's 250 feet. But other- you have two individuals, 115 pounds. That's not a lot. So uh, the 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 palm prints, do you think that points to two individuals or, or one? Because... Again, uh, like you just said, if there's distortion in the print, maybe they're the same print, but one is a little more distorted than the other.
1: The other thing that I wonder about, too, is if the attack took place inside the truck and outside of the truck, why did it go down that way? Did she try to escape the truck, or was she forced out of the truck? Either way, one of the palm prints could belong to her, to the victim.
0: Right. And it's just distorted.
1: Right. And as you pointed out, if they're distorted, they could belong to the same person. To be honest with you, I really don't know. This This case is, is very interesting to me because there's a good deal of possibilities, I believe, when looking at this thing. Now, as said, we got that distance from the truck to the riverbank, 250 feet. From there, it was a steep 10-foot drop to the river. In addition to the drag marks, investigators also found spots of blood and hair along that trail, the drag mark trail. Let's get into the autopsy, Captain. Forensic pathologist Dr. John Pfaff conducted the autopsy. Because this case has remained an ongoing story for so long, some of the materials have found their way to the public's reach. I reviewed the 22-page autopsy report put together by the good doctor, on Columbus Hospital of Great Falls, Montana, Letterhead. Page one tells us a brief description of the injuries this poor young woman suffered. There were multiple blunt force impact injuries involving the head and neck. These are extensive skull fractures with contusions and lacerations to the brain. Multiple blunt force impact injuries involving the upper extremities, mostly the hands. So if you're doing a little mental imaging here. What does that tell us? These are defensive wounds. So she was aware of the attack. She was attacked from the front and she's putting up her hands and arms attempting to defend herself.
0: Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL ixllearning.com. get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at ixl.com/garage visit ixl.com/garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price check out ixl.com/garage
1: today the best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post clean clarity you get It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. While your subscription is active,
0: all right, we're back. Cheers, mates.
1: Cheers to you, Captain. We are back to the doom and gloom that is the true crime world. So Kimberly suffered a brutal beating death. There were dozens of blows to the head with damage to the forehead and the right and left sides of the head. Kim was dead before she was placed in the water and there was no evidence of a sexual assault. The pathologist determined that the injuries were caused by a weapon, but he could not initially determine what that weapon was. He also noted that she was fully clothed when she was found. There was no evidence of her being choked violently during this attack. And there are several pages of the autopsy that are devoted to a hammer and crescent wrench diagrams. So even though he could not determine exactly what the weapon was, it seems like he had a decent idea of what it probably could have been. The services for Kimberly were held on June 19th at the 1st, presbyterian church in poplar montana a dive team searched the river and discovered a discarded hammer but the doctor examined this hammer compared it to the injuries and determined that the hammer was not used to kill kimberly when the vehicle was returned to her father he was asked to check for anything that might be missing from the truck Kimberly's father looked through a toolbox in the back of the truck and determined that a 12-inch metal crescent wrench was missing. The doctor compared that type of wrench to the injuries and determined that the wrench could have caused some, but not all, of Kimberly's injuries. So now, Captain, we know that we have the use of at least two weapons in the commission of this homicide.
0: Is that what it really means, though? What's that? Or does it just mean that? The crescent wrench could be responsible for some, but that's just could.
1: Yes, that's what he says. He says that the the crescent wrench could have caused some, but not all of the injuries. To right. What them.
0: I'm saying is maybe there's a, a, a instrument out there that would be able to cause all of them.
1: That does not seem to be his findings. I see what you're saying that that if they're saying this one doesn't fit all of them, right. I w- I think what he's laying out for us here is that he believes at least two different types, different shapes of weapons were used during this attack.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of tools that have different ends. Um, yeah, and there's
1: a lot of weapons. There's a lot of a lot of things. Well,
0: it doesn't sure. make a lot of sense to me if you're hitting somebody with possibly a hammer or a crowbar or something like that. That you would then stop, remove that that item, and and then pick up a a wrench. In the in, the, in the truck,
1: it usually is, that you know. does not occur. You're correct. Usually somebody starts the job and finishes the job with the same weapon that's in their hand. We also most of us have two arms and two hands. Um, you could be armed with two different types of weapons. The thing with the crescent wrench that we have to keep in mind, remember the bottom portion of a crescent wrench, you can move it, you can maneuver it up and down. So that's going to have a significantly different shape than some other types of tools out there, especially if, if is in fact, you have that point now from where the, the bottom portion of the, I don't you're getting, you're getting me talking about, uh, parts of tools know, that I right. don't don't know the the terminology for. So, but in regards to the the evidence that was collected, again, we have several agencies that were at the scene. No one knew who was in charge. The result of this was evidence stored in different locations by different agencies and over the years some of this would become lost, contaminated, and in some cases there's speculation of even maybe stolen or destroyed, purposely destroyed evidence.
0: Well, think about this. It's a very small town, right? Yes. Yes. this is.
1: It was actually larger in population then than it is now.
0: That's never a good sign. If you're in a town that the population, you're losing people every year, something's going on. But this is like the connecting point. Like you said, we have all these different uh, departments working this case. Everybody probably knows everybody. If you are not even the suspect, but you are the person responsible for this and you start hearing that different departments have evidence, wouldn't that be a lot easier to try to contaminate anything that they have?
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you have, if it's accessible to you, yes. Uh, The left
0: hand wouldn't know what the right hand was doing.
1: You're exactly right. The investigators found and photographed numerous shoe impressions at the scene, but this was done, again, after several law enforcement agencies were at the scene and moving about and looking and trying to find evidence and figure out what was going on. So it's easy to believe that most of these shoe impressions, I believe, Captain, that they probably belong to law enforcement.
0: We saw this with the Nicole Brown Simpson case where there was multiple shoe prints and they had to then go back and figure out which shoe prints were law enforcement and which, one were, which ones were media and which ones were unidentified.
1: Mm-hmm. It's never been determined in this case what shoe prints belong to whom uh, or shoe impressions, whatever you want to call it, belong to who. So what we also have are items that were collected, other items that may or may not be even part of the case or crime, at all, you know, these would be your typical items, standard stuff like beer cans, trash, cigarette butts and, and different types of debris. Again, this was a hangout spot at that time for teenagers and young adults. So probably a good deal of beer drinking went on down there.
0: Well, we also have the truck to the river. That's our whole scene. That's 250 feet. That's a quite a bit of an area. To, to have you know debris in that you're not going to know what, what matches the crime scene or not.
1: What I think is pretty neat in this situation is that the evidence at the crime scene really does tell the story. The evidence shows us how this murder took place. We don't know exactly why Kim was in that location near the Poplar River by the old train bridge. Did she drive there by herself or with someone? Did she, was she intending to meet someone there? Did someone take her there against her will? That part we don't know, but we know that she was there. Her truck was there. This was the location that Kim had been to before. She had been to this location before that night. So she was familiar with this area. And, So more likely she probably went there either with someone or was meeting someone in my mind, maybe even a group of people plus she's a teenager and many times.
0: Okay. If she's going to meet some people there, we do have we don't have any evidence of that. We don't have any friends coming forward and saying that she was supposed to meet us there. Again, we don't have phone records of that. I I don't think that's something that we should assume. I think one of the things that we do have evidence of was she was at the gas station by herself, that Mm -hmm. we have multiple eyewitnesses that saw her driving around that night by herself. Mm -hmm. It's very possible if this is a local hangout that you get one or two guys that, that go to that area. And again, like I said before, you remember how it was on a Friday night. If you didn't make plans or you didn't hear about the party, you drove around in a car and you went from house to house, you know, well, let's go to this buddy's house and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And you, you might like run into their parents. Oh, well he said he was going over to this guy's house. So you're like, okay, we'll head there. And then once you get there, they're like, oh, well they actually took off and went down. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I, I just, it seems like, she got in this argument with her boyfriend, and then he was like, well, I'm going to go to the bar, and she d- she wasn't okay with just staying at home. So it looks like she was going around trying to figure out what to do. And it's very possible that she could have came up to that spot just to see if anybody was there that she knew and then ran into trouble.
1: Well, that's why I say I think she either went there with somebody— or with the intention of meeting somebody, whether that was a plan to meet someone or just her well, hoping that other people were there. Were there, right, right. And I say that because thinking back to my youth, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to text people and go, Hey, what are you doing tonight? Hey, what are you doing tonight? No, you, mm-hmm. if you got off work, I remember plenty of times if I got off work at 11, 12 o'clock at night, if it was a Friday, Saturday, I had three, three or four spots that I knew I could do, uh, it'd take me five minutes to drive by all three or four of these spots, and I might find a handful of my buddies chilling at one of these spots. Mm -hmm. I mean, Finster's Garage comes to mind, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that was was my go-to. That's where I hope to find people. But regardless, the, the other thing that I do want to point out too, though, the reason why I believe that, though, Captain, is because I don't think if someone abducted her or took control of her and her vehicle and decided that they were, they had murder in mind or rape in mind. This doesn't seem to me like an ideal spot to go to again. It's a known hangout. You don't take somebody that you're planning to do something like that to, to that spot. Yeah. Again, I'm going to disagree because well, you people, people could already be there or somebody could happen upon you during the commission of your attack. You you know the area. It's a small area. It's it's a town of 800-some right, people. But
0: what we're not privy to is how long did people hang out at this spot? Was you it could like,
1: drive 15 minutes in any direction and be out in the middle of nowhere from no, Poplar, Montana.
0: Right. I understand that. But what I'm saying is like the car wash, for example, that people hung out. It, you weren't going to see people there at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. You know what I mean? Like you'd see people from maybe at nine, people would be starting to hang out. Maybe you'd see some people by eleven.
1: You're you're forgetting the statements of the police officers that said they saw the truck at four a.m., thought nothing of it because they knew teenagers hung out there.
0: It's one car. I I don't know. I I, I just I think it's not a bad spot. You're twenty, you know, you're two hundred and fifty feet from uh, a great spot to dump a body
1: well regardless the, you know,
0: the, the, the river which is going to wash away tons of evidence
1: regardless of our, our thoughts and feelings what we do know is that some of the attack took place in the truck some of the attack took place outside of the truck she was hit many times with at least two hard objects used as weapons she was dragged down to the river's edge this over 200 feet away There is about 10 or so feet of a steep embankment to the actual water. Someone pushed her over and she rolled down this embankment. Her killer or killers then went down the embankment and pushed Kim. They had to physically push her into the water. She was found face up and she had mud on her from the embankment. The keys to the truck were not located at the scene, even though they were found Uh, even though they found her purse. Mm -hmm. The murder weapons were not found.
0: So we have two palm prints that don't match. That kind of points in the direction of killers instead of killer. Possible multiple instruments used as weapons that points towards killers, not killer. The fact that it's 250 feet. Yes, she's not that heavy, but it'd be a lot easier to move her with two individuals. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's a steep embankment. There's a lot that, that points to, again, I even think the attack inside the truck and outside of the truck makes sense. Like I'm going to get in and you're going to go around to the other side because this is also in the middle of nowhere. You think, on how she was attacked if she was fighting back she has a lot of defensive wounds that there would be a possibility that she'd be able to get out and run or, or do something a lot harder to get away from two individuals um, there's just a lot that points to two to instead of one
1: it does where my mind goes to though is if you got two full size males as the attackers I, I don't I don't understand why the the drag marks. I think you'd be able to move her without without that that much of a, a trail.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
1: So, let's go back to Kim's boyfriend Greg. Did he really drop her off as said? Well, yes, we kn- we know this for several reasons. First, Kim took her father's truck and drove it into town. This is isn't out of character. We have more than one person who says they saw Kim sitting alone in the truck parked at the gas station. Investigators learned right away about some troubles between Greg and Kim, as we pointed out. The two, they, they lived just a couple of houses away from each other. Now, late on that afternoon of June 15th, Greg says that he saw Kim arriving home. He spoke with her, and she looked tired. This is where he becomes aware of her hanging out with this other guy. He says, Hey, why do you look so tired? She says, well, I was out driving around till four 30 in the morning, the previous night with another guy. His name is Steve Shagan. Greg was in his words. This is his exact words, "a little pissed about this, but they were going to stick to their plan and go out on the date as well. As said before the date, Greg went to the store to buy some beer and This, this is where you start getting that whole small town story, that whole small town mix going on when he's at the store buying beer, he sees Steve's girlfriend and Greg decides to inform Steve's girlfriend. Her name is Susie Kern about what went down. (laughs) What a dick. (laughs) I don't mind doing that at all. I mean, I
0: just think it's funny that he he saw her and he went, yeah, I'm going to ruin her night.
1: Well, he probably doesn't trust this Steve guy and wants her to know what what Steve's been up to as well.
0: Well, no, and I understand that. I know that he's just trying to inform her, but it's just like he just ruined her night.
1: Well, be it as it may, that's what happened. They went to the movie theater, the drive-in theater. This was around 8.30 after the movie. He says they drove around for a little bit, and then he took her home, dropping her off somewhere between midnight and 12.30 a.m., He said he was going to to the bar. Now, multiple witnesses all said they saw and interacted with Greg when he was at the Legion Club bar that night. Right. These witnesses include but are not limited to several members of Greg's family and some of Greg's friends, but also Kim's parents as well. He sees them there and talks with them. He told investigators that he leaves this bar around 1.30 a.m. and drove around town a few times looking to see if Kim was out driving. So this on the surface to me seemed a little weird. Why would he just drive around town looking to see if Kim was out driving? Even I thought it was even a little weird, even knowing that she was out driving the night before. He says this is because he just saw her parents at the bar. And they've known each other for a long time. He knows that when her parents are out late at night, right. that Kim would go out late at night. So he drives by her house after driving around. He doesn't see her. Drives by her house and confirms that she was in fact gone by seeing the truck was gone at this time.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. He's, he's trying to catch her in the act if she's driving around with another guy.
1: He then goes to a payphone and decides to call Kim's house. Kim's mother, now home, answered the phone, and Greg asked if Kim was home at that time. Kim's mother said that she was not. She asked if Greg would drive around and look for Kim. At about 1.45 a.m., Greg called Catherine Mo from the same payphone. According to Greg, he called Catherine after speaking to Kim's mother. He called because he wanted Catherine to come out that night, and he does say to the officers, he's upfront about this. Partly, he wanted to make Kim jealous if he happened to see Kim out driving around with somebody else. He was hoping she would see him out driving with somebody.
0: Ha else. Ha, ha, gotcha. That's what you'd say. Ha, ha ha. Two can play at this game.
1: According to Catherine. Greg spoke very casually and never really said why he called. She said that he did not sound drunk and he didn't mention anything about Kim niece during the call. But when questioned by police, Catherine also added that Greg had never called her before and the call was not expected. In fact, Greg told Catherine that he got her number from information. There are some reports out there that say these two that they dated in the past, I'm not clear where anybody gets that information or where that came from. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying that in statements that Catherine Moe and her mother and her mother, two statements given to police, both of them said that Greg had never called this girl before. And we see how much activity is going on on the phone between all these different people and different families. You would think if they did, in fact, actually date previously, that there would have been some kind of phone calls. Greg says that he drove around until approximately 2.45 a.m. or maybe 3 a.m. He then gave up and went home, and he went directly to bed. He does say that he never went by the train bridge that night. Now, remember Steve and his girlfriend, yeah. Susie Kern, they were out together the night of June fifteenth, and they remembered seeing Greg and Kim together early that evening, which makes sense. Steve says later he saw Kimberly alone in her truck parked at the gas station around 1230 or 1 a.m. He also says that he saw Greg's Mustang parked at the Legion Club at about 130 a.m. I go through all of that just to point out that a big chunk of Greg's story is matching up with not only what he's telling police, but with what other witnesses are separately individually telling police. The police and their statements
0: right and and who's the information coming from i think that's important
1: because yeah because if there's no need for kim's parents to aid him there's no need for steve to aid his story yeah if
0: anything those are the two suspects right off the bat right
1: well, Kim's so, Kim's parents are the ones are the, are the victims. You know, they have they have more skin in the game than anybody when it comes to nailing somebody for the murder of their daughter.
0: Right, but what I'm saying with with Steve, he's going, "Hey, I I saw his car." Right. Uh, I you know, so I have uh I believe there's a lot of weight to those um uh, uh eyewitness accounts.
1: Yeah. So then here's where things take a a turn. Okay? Because really what we have very early on is police looking at Greg Norgard as their number one suspect. He's the boyfriend. He was out late. Kim's out late, out late as well. They knew that there was a disagreement between the two. They're looking at Greg. But officers canvass the homes in the vicinity of the train bridge looking for potential witnesses. Well, they find a woman named Roberta Clencher. She tells deputies that she did not hear anything unusual that morning, but her teenage son, Barry Beach had returned home early that morning and he was covered in blood. Oh my God. <laughs> that's never, that's yeah. not good either. Not good. Bob, uh, the beach family does. They lived near Kim niece's family. To be honest with you, most of the people in this story lived quite close to one another. Barry said, that the blood came from punching his car in frustration after it got stuck in the sand at a swimming hole.
0: I'd say let me see your knuckles.
1: Well, here's where the story starts to get wonky. The, the investigation, the case, and everything. I mean, we already have a contaminated crime scene and missing evidence and mm-hmm. scattered evidence, really, amongst different jurisdictional custody.
0: It's going to get willy-wonky. Right,
1: right. Later, this woman denies saying any of this. And what we will learn is that the deputy that took the statement or, or spoke with this woman, as he claims, did not write down any kind of report about this claim. He says that he notified the sheriff immediately about this information, um, and, and then they took it from there. Mm-hmm. Barry Beach, well, he's even tied more closely to the victim. He dated Kimberly's younger sister, Pam Mm. Beach was 17 years old at the time of Kim's death and lived a few hundred yards away from the train bridge. He moved to Louisiana to live with his father and his stepmother not too long after Kim's death. He was police did speak with him a couple times before he moved away. Right. The initial suspects, as you can see, are the boyfriend, Gary Norgaard, and now Barry Beach. Both were interviewed several times, both denied any involvement, and investigators never found any direct evidence linking either to the crime at this stage of the investigation.
0: Well, did they check out Barry Beach's car to see if there was any dings or dents that he put in when he punched the car?
1: Well, his statement about punching the car is backed up by two witnesses. And the way that this story works is that he, I think he had a Ford Rancho, ranchero i'm trying to think it's, i i wasn't born when these vehicles were right, around right. but it Let's was
0: go a, with rancho because it's just better
1: ranchero i think is actually that's
0: probably what it is but, but rancho is great
1: which it was kind of cool captain because it's a like an el camino it's a it's a car in the front and truck in the back
0: well business like,
1: in front <laughs> party in the back
0: no it's i think that's a party in the front and work in the back if, if it's a el camino but it sounds like something you'd buy at Taco Bell at, at That's three true. o'clock in the morning. Give me a couple
1: rancheros. I'm going to pick up three on my way home from the garage. Today. Mm-hmm. He says that him and two friends, this is another couple went to go swimming and this, this is uh Barry Barry beach. beach. Yeah. And this is where his, his story and it's backed up by these two friends. The interesting thing though, is he's dating the younger sister at the time, Pam, he asked her to go swimming. She does not go swimming that day. He parks his vehicle, and anybody that knows like an El Camino or any types of these vehicles, they're, they're, they're not super high up off of the ground. They're kind of no. low to the ground. He parks it, and he got it stuck in the sand. And he's a young dude. He doesn't know any better. He's trying to get it out of the sand, and instead of using his brain, tries to muscle it out by – back and forth back and forth back and forth right and he ends up blowing out the transmission trying to get it out of the sand in aggravation he gets pissed he yells at his friends he punches the vehicle he kicks it um just (laughs) really just you know dumb teenage stuff that you're like oh why did i really bloody myself hurt my hand and, and ding up my vehicle out of out of just being something that I could fix later. Barry Beach sounds like Barry Bitch. Well, interestingly enough, there was also a rumor going around town that mm-hmm. a group of teenage girls killed Kimberly Niece. The investigation went nowhere productive for about a year and a half.
0: That makes sense, though, too, because even if there was two killers, mm-hmm. but they're both female, mm-hmm. drag marks. Right. The defensive wounds. I, I I would like to know, and they probably know as far as like the autopsy goes, but like how, how deep some of these wounds were and they could normally they could, now they can, maybe they couldn't back then, but they could tell you the force of the trauma, the pressure, the pounds per pressure or whatever.
1: They usually can do that when somebody's only struck a couple of times. The problem when you have repeated blows over and over again, and I apologize for having to say this, but there's no nice way of saying it. The more you hit something over and over again in the same spot, the more right. deeper the impact becomes. And she was, as said in the autopsy report, hit dozens of times in the head. The As as we were talking about, Captain, the investigation really goes nowhere for about a year and a half. And then in a very weird Turn of events. This is in February of 1981. Kim's great uncle, he's a former state senator, Stanley Niece. He's murdered. Stanley Niece was 77 at the time, and he had a lady friend that was renting a room from him. The way that this goes down is investigators found the bodies of three people at Niece's home. It was Stanley Niece. It was the woman renting the room from him and her friend. Mm. It appeared that the three were shot in the basement of the home while watching TV and baking cookies. This is a small town. As we've pointed out time and time again, murder is not a common thing in this town at all. Right. And the sheriff frustrated that they have no answers in the Kim Niece case Now her great uncle, former state senator, is killed. He says to the paper, you know, he's asked, is there any chance that these crimes are related? And he said, look, we don't have any information or or evidence at this time. Mind you, this is the day that they find the bodies that these two events are connected. But he says, I hope that they are. That might give us some type of lead In the Kim Neese case that has now gone cold.
0: Yeah, something that they're missing from the first case that only makes sense by connecting the murders.
1: Right. The three of these victims were killed on February 25th. This was determined by scientific evidence found at the crime scene. The bodies were not found until the following day on the 26th of February. But it gets even weirder, Captain, because... In March, in early March, we have an arrest that is made in this case of the three individuals killed in the basement. What they did was they linked the bullet casings and bullets that were used to kill these three victims to spent shell casings that were found in the possession of an individual. This individual lived next door to Stanley Niece. They determined that these bullets were all fired from the same gun, the same gun that killed these three people at some point was in the possession of this person. Now this person, who is he? Well, oddly enough, his name is William Norgard. He's 26 years old at the time. Next-door neighbor to Stanley niece, Kim's great uncle, and he's the older brother of Kim's one-time boyfriend, Greg Norgard. The strange thing about this, as much as you want to look into it and go, this has got to be connected. These two things have all got to be connected in somehow in some manner. It actually appears that they may not have been. Unfortunately, William Norgard was a very... He had a, he had a lot of problems and he struggled through a lot of issues for a long long time. He spent the majority of his life in and out of hospitals for being treated for physical ailments as well as psychiatric treatment. He was quite unstable and he there's some discrepancy either he was on new meds at the time or off of his meds at the time of these of this triple homicide. But what happened was we know that he was home. There was something going on with his medication at the time. And he had developed this weird obsession with Stanley niece and the, the financial situation of his parents. And it's believed that he thought or held Stanley niece somewhat accountable for the financial problems that his parents were experiencing and decided to attack the old man and gunned down him as well as these two people as well. We have William Norgard, who's sentenced to 300 years in prison. They have in Montana at the time anyway, what is referred to as dangerous offender status. And they gave that to this young man who really was, I've reviewed this pretty well because I thought there had to be some kind of connection. I even wondered if maybe if, if William Norgard was involved or responsible for the killing of Kimberly Niece, But th- this, this kid was, I say kid, he was 26 when he was convicted. I'm talking years and years of treatment, documentation to show that he was treated for this for 12, 13 years prior to these homicides. And unfortunately, he very likely, in my opinion, should not have been sentenced to prison. For this, he may not even understand what it is that he did or understand right from wrong. And this young man took his own life while he was in prison. This was in December of 1984.
0: Thank you for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. If you need more True Crime Garage, Check us out on the Stitcher app. All of our episodes are on the Stitcher app for free. And we all... <laughs> they're free. Free. And really creepy. They're for free. And we also free. have a bonus show called Off the Record, so check that out. All right, Crispy Colonel.
1: Don't be afraid, everyone, to join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't miss.